it's a privilege to be able to do this with you this morning. Uh, you know, we've, we've been here before. I've preached some sermons to you before, but this is uh, my first opportunity to preach to you as, uh, as an elder of this church. I don't know if it feels any different for you, but it certainly feels different for me. Uh, I love this church dearly and the people of it, uh, and I'm just so excited to be able to serve, uh, in, serve you in, in this new way. Uh, so part of what we believe about how a church works and what church governance is is that this is not just a new, uh, new title, a new role. There's real uh, and new responsibility and there's new weight, uh, and I certainly feel both of those things this morning. Uh, and I'm increasingly grateful for those who just unceasingly pray for the elders and in particular for those who are preaching uh, each week. So let's uh, just recall together briefly before we get started where we've been, what we've been doing. We've been in the uh, letters of Paul and looking at his prayers for those churches for the purpose of seeing what are the things that we should be praying about? What are the things that we should be striving towards? What are the things that we should be praying big about as people and as a church? And hopefully leading to just an increased life of prayer for us personally, for our families, and for our church corporately. Uh, the text we're going to be in this morning is in Philippians chapter 1. So I'd ask you to turn there with me. And while, uh, while you're finding your place there in Philippians chapter 1, uh, would you please stand with me and we'll read, uh, I'll read this section for us. Philippians chapter 1, uh, we'll read verses 1 through to 11. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ who are at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Lord, we are thankful for your word and that you have kept for us through this time this prayer of Paul that we can read it and be encouraged by it and be exhorted by it to the life that you would have us lead as your people. I pray that this would stir in us a desire for prayer, that this would stir in us a desire to glorify you. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. You can uh, grab a seat. So before we dive into our passage this morning, which is uh, chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, let's just get some context going here first. We spent uh, 
pretty much the whole summer in the book of Philippians. So we're going to let that preaching series do a whole lot of the heavy lifting for us and, and, and kind of simplify our, our context and summary here. So what Paul is doing in this letter is he's writing to encourage this church that he loves. Those who have supported him, and he said it in the section we read, unceasingly from the beginning of his ministry, through his missionary journeys, as he traveled around, as he planted other churches, and even now that he was in prison, they continued to support him in real ways. Uh, and even, he says later, a great, per- great personal sacrifice. This wasn't a rich church. They supported Paul financially and practically because they loved him, not because they had piles of money. And yet, Paul writes to them specifically because they're struggling with things. They're a a church with real people with real issues, and so they are struggling together uh, in joy. They are struggling with unity, and they are struggling with being distracted by the things of the world. So he opens his letter here in what we read, and he tells them he loves them, that he's thankful for them, that he's confident that the work of Christ will be completed in them, that he yearns for them from his heart. And he prays that they would grow in love, knowledge, and discernment, so they would be pure and blameless before Christ. That's the core of our text this morning in in chapter 1, 9 to 11. He prays that they would be further sanctified, growing in the fruit of righteousness in anticipation of the day of Christ. It's very clear through this prayer and this section of the letter that we read that Paul is praying from the heart. He's writing to people he knows. He's writing to a church he's intimately familiar with. He knows them. He knows their heart. He knows their struggles. And you can feel his burden of love and care for that people. So he prays for them for the same reason that he writes to them in the rest of the letter. He wants to encourage them. He wants to exhort them in areas of their weakness. And all the while calling them to greater sanctification and righteousness in Christ. So if you read through the rest of Philippians, you'll find that those themes you'll see over and over throughout the letter. This prayer, this introduction, this area of thanksgiving really lays out what it is that Paul wants for the church. So I've been in this text uh, and and praying it for me all this week, and I've been praying it for you all this week. So having spent so much time uh, praying that this would be our reality as a church, uh, I'm hoping now to exhort you to these things as well. So what we're going to see from Paul in this section is an exhortation that applies to all Christians of all time. The call is to sanctification, to grow in the fruit of righteousness. And this is a call that applies to every Christian everywhere that has ever been and will ever be. There's no point where you reach sanctified. You're never there. The distance between you and Jesus is the work you have to do in sanctification. We're not, we're never going to get there. This is a continual call for all Christians of all time. And so what this ought to do then, any exhortation of sanctification as we're going to see, is we ought to be humble, recognizing how far we are from Christ. It ought to drive us to prayer. We cannot accomplish these things without crying out to the Lord, and we must cling to our Savior in all of it. This is not a work of me, not a work of man but a work of God. What you may also find and experience is that a call to sanctification, a call to greater righteousness, will make you uncomfortable as you recognize things you don't like about yourself and shouldn't. 
it may make us feel inadequate and small before the Lord. You feel like you've made progress in areas, and then why, Lord, did you show me something new was doing really good on that other thing? And it may even make you angry, frustrated at the Lord as, as our sin and pride is uncovered uh, because of pride, because of the flesh. So what I want us to do, and any time you sit under or read an exhortation to sanctification, is just be prepared for what your flesh is going to try to do, how it's going to try to distract you and trick you and fool you through pride. Rather, we must cling to the Spirit and pray that the Holy Spirit will work in us. This will be a work of the Lord. So let's start with the first prayerful exhortation then from Paul. The very first one is that Paul begins by praying that their love would abound more and more. Abounding love. So let's start with the word. This love that Paul writes about is not emotive love. It's not the one that, that you feel that makes your heart beat faster when you're in somebody's presence. It's not that one. It's not brotherly love between friends or a, a cohort or, you know, you can take a military analogy, men in a unit. It's not that kind of, that kind of love. It is, of course, then that other Greek word that we talk about, right? It's that agape love, that love that isn't emotive. It isn't just brotherly by association. It's not just a feeling. It's, it's a choice. Love that sees through our sorrow, our anger, our fear, our disagreements, our disappointment, our frustration. This is love that loves anyway. Love that covers a multitude of sins. Love that by its nature is sacrificial. This is the love that we see given to us from God. This is the love that actually matters eternally. That sounds great, you say, but you know, in this context, like, what's Paul talking about? Who are we supposed to love? What do we do with this? Are we, you know, are they supposed to love Paul? Are they called to love God, love Christ, love one another? What's the call? Well, to answer that, we're going to look through, uh, just briefly, the rest of Philippians. Paul's praying for them to abound in this love, so surely in the rest of the letter, he tells them what he means, and he certainly does. So I went through Philippians, I'll save you the work, and uh, I'm just going to outline all the different moments uh, of love he talks about, both in examples of love worked out and in specific exhortation to love. So first, this kind of love is what caused the Philippian church to support Paul and to send Epaphroditus to him. They loved Paul. He was in prison. That's a shameful thing in the Roman culture. That's, you, don't, you don't talk to those guys. You don't support those guys. They sent a man from the church. They sent him money to, to support him. Love also caused people who were united with Paul in the gospel to keep preaching the gospel, even though Paul was in prison and they were at risk of that themselves. This is the kind of love that caused Paul to want to remain on this earth so he could reunite with the Philippians, right? To live as Christ, to die as gain. He said, for me, it is better for you if I remain. This is also the love that caused Timothy and Epaphroditus to be truly concerned for the Philippian church and to long for them. They were worried about this church because they loved them. And it's the same love that then caused Paul to send Timothy and Epaphroditus back to the Philippians, even though he was certain great need. Paul's in prison. He's awaiting essentially a death sentence. If there's anybody who needs love ministering to the help of Timothy Epaphroditus, it's him. But he sends them back to the Philippian church out of love. This is also the love by which the Father sent the Son. 
And Christ chose to humble himself for in love for us to the point of death. And this is the love that was to motivate the church later to read in chapter 2 to unity. He calls them to have the same love, being of full accord and of one mind. And he says, playing out the love, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. That's the love that you choose. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. This is that sacrificial love. Nobody said it was easy. This love, then, is one we are called to have for one another. That's, that's what he wants us, that's what he's calling us to. That your love may abound more and more, and as we read through the rest of the letter, that love is what we would have for each other. And we can be thankful that Paul writes in chapter 2 there that this mind, this common love they can have is yours in Christ. And it's ours in Christ. Thank goodness we're not trying to do this on our own. Uh, D.A. Carson wrote a book called uh, Love in Hard Places. And he writes there, I suspect that one of the reasons why there are so many exhortations in the New Testament for Christians to love other Christians is because this is not an easy thing to do. And he's so right. If in reading this you feel like, Paul, like, love again? Like, come on. We've got that one. We know about it. We know it's a big deal. Can you just, like, lay off? But read through Paul's letters. Like, the reason he tells every single church to love one another is because every single church was terrible at it. It's a common problem. It is really something we should expect when we have people in common. It is hard to love one another in a way that matters. It is easy to love people we agree with. So easy. But the Lord doesn't choose to save and bring to our church only people we agree with. And so we must work to love one another. Not only did he call them to love, but he also calls them to abound in love. This isn't something they didn't have. They, they weren't unloving. They just needed more and to continue to grow. Other translations will read uh, that your love may overflow more and more, that your love will keep growing. Picture a fountain that never stops. So the issue is not that they didn't have any love, but that their love needed to keep growing. And that's a consistent call for Paul, right? More and more, grow, abound, overflow. The consistent expectation of the Bible of Christians is this, that we would seek the character, the, the characteristics of Christ, that we would seek the attributes of Christ and continue to grow in them. It is an always upward journey, the upward call of Christ Jesus, right? It's a continuing reality for us. In other epistles, Paul talks about progress in the faith. In Philippians, he talks about straining forward to what lies ahead. It's a very consistent biblical expectation of the Christian that we seek to grow and abound more and more. One thing we said at the beginning about this call is that it's for every Christian, right? It doesn't go away, it doesn't end, it never stops. Every follower of Christ with any story, any, uh, any history, any past, any length of belief or lack thereof can and should seek to grow in love. And we can say this because that's, we know, the very first thing you, you on your own personally experience of the gospel is the love of God. That is what draws us, that is what works on our heart, that is what the Holy Spirit places in us and we feel the love of God and from there it overflows. Every Christian 
in every place can continue to abound in love. If you've been in the faith a long time, you can certainly grow in this. And you'll know, uh, certainly by experience, that the Lord will continually fill you to overflowing. When you're walking with Him, when you're faithful with Him, when you're communing with the Lord through the study of the Word and the Holy, and the Holy Spirit through Scripture, you will know that you'll never, you don't run out of love. The Lord brings problems, He brings difficult people, He brings hard experiences with family. When you're walking with Him, you don't run out of love. So today, do you feel that reality in your marriage? Do you run out of love for your spouse? Do you run out of love for your children? Does your spring seem dry? Remember that our love is just the overflow of the love of the Lord for us, and that never runs dry. If you're a new believer, you can certainly grow in this love as well. You've experienced it in your heart, in your life, the sacrificial love of God for you, and now, as with everybody else, you're called to extend that to other people, to those we fellowship with here in the church, to your friends, to your family, and even those that may persecute you, who have hurt you, wounded you, ignored, or rejected you. This is the love that we know the world does not understand, and the love that Jesus said we would be known by. This is the identifying mark of the Christian, is the real, genuine love that matters. If you're not a believer in Christ, you can certainly grow in this love too. And that's probably the most important prayer we could have this morning, is that those who don't know the love of God would. The first thing to understand about the sacrificial love of God is that he has it for you. It's the love by which he sent his son in the flesh to live on this earth, to take on your sin, die in your place for your punishment that you might be saved through his righteousness, through his love. The love by which God loved us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And it's the love by which he promises us life eternal and promises to resurrect us from the dead to be with him. Everybody can grow in the love of God. This is the first thing that Paul prays, that our love would abound more and more. The second thing Paul prays is out of the second phrase there, he says uh, that he prays that their love would abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. The key word there is with. That love that we're called to grow in needs to be characterized by knowledge and discernment. We are not called to love that is unguided, love that is undirected, or indiscriminate or uninformed. If you've done that, seen that, lived that, walked that, you know that is not the most beneficial, pure, or valuable kind of love. That's love that lacks any exhortation, any teaching, any direction, any work in somebody's life through the Holy Spirit. Our love, then, is not called to be that. It is called to be informed by knowledge and discernment. We'll talk about each of these. First, knowledge. Every time Paul uses this word, he specifically means the knowledge of God and Christ. And it shows up, I think, 14 other times in his epistles. That's always what he's talking about. So this is not 
like book smarts. This isn't worldly wisdom. It's not just knowledge for its own sake. It's not a psychology degree. This is knowledge of God. This is the kind of knowledge that we are called to that will inform our love. So the next question then is, okay, we want to inform our love with knowledge of God. How do we grow in knowledge of God? It's one of the easier applications out of this text. We know that the knowledge of God comes through the study of his word. We know that the knowledge of God personally and experientially will come through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. By devoting time to the Lord in prayer and meditation on the truths of his word while the Holy Spirit works in us. Knowledge of God is attainable. It requires work, but it's there, available for us. An amazing thing about the knowledge of God is the way we've described it there is that it's unique to Christians. You can't encounter that in the world. Those who do not have the love of God working in them, the Holy Spirit in their life, will not exemplify the knowledge of God. There are those who have huge head knowledge of even the, the Bible, of our theology, of all kinds of stuff, and they do not have any knowledge of God because the Holy Spirit has not worked in them. There are people who are staunchly atheist who work to disprove the Bible. And to do that, they have to know it. And they do. They have huge knowledge of Scripture, academic knowledge. But knowledge of God? No way. This is the knowledge we are called to, knowledge that is personal to us, that is the reality of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. The great thing about this call, as with everything in the world of sanctification and righteousness, is that it's a call for all Christians. The call is to grow from where you are. If you came uh, and you've been in the church for your whole life, as long as you can remember, you've been at church, you have lots of biblical knowledge, you have lots of experience, lots of experience with people and the Lord, you have great knowledge of God, but you do not know everything. If you have a PhD or an MDiv like I'm working on now, uh, completing my MDiv is not the measure of knowledge of God. It's a degree that forces me to do it because I'm paying for it. So I'm, right, I'm motivated to do so because there's, there's, there's cash in the game. Knowledge of God is work, and it's always a measure of from where you are. You're never finished, and you also can never be in a place where you you can't grow in this. If you don't feel like your knowledge of God is is very extensive or is very limited or you're new to the faith, start small. Start first by finding someone who can help you and direct you and show you where to grow. For all of us then, there's all kinds of opportunities personally. We can talk about spiritual disciplines, right? Spend time in the Word, spend time in prayer, spend time in meditation regularly. If you're uh, doing those things, you can seek uh, discipleship. Find someone to walk alongside you who's more mature, who, who can help you grow in the faith. Take opportunities to teach, to exercise your spiritual gifts. Engage with your local church and serve. There's no greater opportunity for growth in lots of character areas than service. Uh, specifically coming up for us even, we have Bible studies starting in January. You want to grow in the knowledge of God? Direct opportunity. Jump in a Bible study. Talk about the Word. Engage with it with people. Uh, I think it'll be around the book of Colossians. Uh, you want another opportunity for, for growth? We've got a junior high ministry running, and we're having members of the church teach that. Any member of the church who wants to teach, jump in. We've got two-week rotation. Every two weeks, we need someone. Believe me, there is no better way to become familiar with Scripture than to have to teach it to somebody. I have spent more time in Philippians 1, 9 to 11 this week than I thought possible, and I know this text better than any other place in Scripture because of this experience. Teaching others 
he's you. And a huge one we can engage in as a church is, is at our corporate prayer meeting. You want to grow in prayer? We want to grow together in prayer. We want to seek the will and counsel of the Lord for this church together corporately. Be here so the Lord can work in all of us together. It's this knowledge of God. He also calls us to, paired with that, discernment. Uh, discernment in this context means like practical insight. Think of the whole book of Proverbs. That's what's going on right here. Uh, this word, and we'll go to the Greek again, the only other place it shows up is in the Greek translation of Proverbs. So think about Proverbs. That's what it's talking about. Practical, real, useful, in-the-moment insight. And we need this because if you've done a lot of Bible reading and then you, you know, put your Bible down in the morning and you, you walk in the living room, like your kids are doing stuff, there's work to go to, there's all these things that you need to address that the Bible didn't tell you about. What do I do when my kids are doing this? What do I do when work blows up? What do I do with an ethical dilemma? What do I do in my marriage? How do I discipline my kids? How do I get up in the morning? All those things are not directly here. There's no verse that says, when your child does this, do this. What there is, though, is a whole incredible and endless set of biblical principles that we can apply with wisdom and discernment. And that's what this is about. Take that knowledge of God, use it, apply it in your life, and it will take the form of this word discernment or practical insight. The fundamental part, though, is that it's rooted in the knowledge of God. We can't be discerning independent of our time in the Word and our knowledge of who God is through the work of the Spirit. So the key question then is, how do we do this? What does it look like? How do you apply biblical wisdom? Well, again, key step number one is to work in the knowledge of God. And the rest of it is through experience and seeking help from other people. So what does this look like in your life? Well, if you want to think through, comp compare this text to what you do presently, on the one side we've got knowledge of God, we've got discernment, we've got abounding love connected to all of those things. When you make decisions, when you walk out into the world, when you go out in your daily life, when you're in the grocery store, when you're in the classroom, when you're in, on the assembly line, how do you make discerning judgments? How do you determine what to do, what is right? Where does your wisdom come from? Is if it's word, worldly discernment, if it's worldly wisdom, if it's what your secular culture is telling you, that ought to be foolishness to us. Christians don't seek advice from people who don't have the same fundamental worldview. It just doesn't make sense. Take, take an extreme bent. Would you go to someone who has a different faith than you to ask them about your faith in Christ or about your life? Would you go to a, a, somebody who is a Muslim and say, how should I live my life today? You know you wouldn't. So why would we go to someone who is an atheist, someone who is an agnostic, someone who denies the fundamental things of what we believe, who does not know God? It doesn't make sense. So do you seek biblical discernment? Another way to uh, work through this practically in your life is when you need advice on something, who do you go to? Are those people godly? Do those people have biblical discernment? Do those people have knowledge of God? If not, it's a problem. What are the sources of your wisdom? What are the sources of your discernment? All these things together point to the third thing that Paul prays, which is that they would approve what is excellent. 
the wording here is really, really important because it actually connects this one to the, the ones we've already talked about. So Paul prays that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent. That's a key connector. That makes this little clause here dependent on everything that happened before. So what we're saying is, in order to approve what is excellent, we need to be doing the previous thing. We need to be abounding in love. We need to be immersed in the knowledge of God and seeking biblical discernment. Approving what is excellent is the product of those things. The next thing we can say is that seeking what is excellent or approving what is excellent goes far beyond just making basic moral decisions. It's not just about right and wrong, right? We often see all the time people who don't believe any of this stuff, and they can make basic right and wrong decisions if they think about it, right? Rooted in them is is the morality of God and their creator. That's not what this is about. This is not basic morals, basic ethics. This is approving what is excellent. It's a high bar. It's not good from bad. It's excellent from good. What's the best thing? Really important for us to note here that this cannot and will not happen if you don't have the characteristics previously listed. And it definitely can't happen if you only have one of them. For instance, if I only seek abounding love and I ignore the growth of the knowledge of God and seeking biblical discernment, I will not approve what is excellent because my decisions will be driven by emotion often and my love will be weak. There will be no room for exhortation, admonishment, teaching. None of that stuff exists if you seek to approve what is excellent based on love alone. You miss the mark. This also cannot happen if we only seek knowledge and discernment. If we make judgments and approvals of what is excellent based only on knowledge of God and applied biblical wisdom, we will also miss the mark. You get into people uh, who end up with very legalistic and narrow fundamentalist views of the world and of the Christian faith. You know, people who say, uh, who would act without consideration. You know, it doesn't matter how new you are in the faith, like, these are the things we do here. You know, you're a new believer, but we wear pants, right? Like, it's that kind of stuff. Like, that's knowledge and discernment, but there's no love there. That is not approving what is excellent in any context. If we operate with knowledge and discernment, but no love. When we do this, we act without consideration. We will choose our causes over our community, and we will choose being right over doing right. And that's not love. That is not approving what is excellent. You miss the mark. Paul knew this by experience, and he shows us in Philippians what this looks like. He writes in particular about two things we already talked about. He, he has this moment of struggle in his heart and in his prayer life. He says, Lord, I don't know whether, which way I want Caesar to rule. I don't know whether I want to die or whether I want to live. They both sound really good. To die is to be with you, but to be here is also to be with you and serve you. But being with you is so great, so good. Paul works through that, and he says, you know, it is, it is better for you that I remain. Both are good. Only one is excellent. That's what he chooses to remain, to work in the gospel, to see the Philippians again. Later, he writes about Timothy and Epaphroditus, and we talked about this. Paul, in his letter, says, I'm sending them back to you to serve you because you need their ministry. Paul also desperately needed them 
some love, some support, some ministering by a fellow brother, by Timothy, someone he loves like a son. Who would you want by your side in prison facing death? Men like this. Paul says, no, Epaphroditus is leaving now. He's coming to see you, to be with you. And as soon as I hear about my trial, Timothy's coming too. I need them, but you need them more. That is Paul in love and knowledge and discernment choosing what is excellent. If you note a theme there at all, it's probably that what is excellent and what is best is not necessarily the best for you. Right? Paul chooses the sacrificial life, the hard choices for others. Our decisions aren't just about us. Paul chose to express that deep love through knowledge, through discernment, through sacrifice. So think about your own life. How do you seek to approve what is excellent? Do you exercise love in that? Do you exercise the knowledge of God in that? Discernment in that? Or do you try to do these things, try to approve what is excellent with knowledge and discernment alone, divorced from love? Or the other way, do you seek to approve what is best, what is excellent based only on love, divorced from knowledge and discernment? None of those things result in approving what is excellent. Do you consider just yourself, your preferences, your positions, your convictions? Does your consideration stop at what is right, or do you consider instead what is best? The fourth thing Paul prays then is that they would be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. This section is also directly connected. Paul prays that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. And you might read that and say, yeah, you know, I, I, this one's a really easy one because I know that I have that in the Lord already. I'm justified. Christ in this great exchange gives me his righteousness, gives me his purity, gives me his blamelessness when he takes my sin, my condemnation. And that's true. That, that gospel truth doesn't go anywhere. We have imputed, that's the word, righteousness from Christ. But that is not what this is talking about. Paul here is saying, grow in love, grow in knowledge, grow in discernment, approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. It's a result. It is something we work towards. This is sanctification. It is growing in righteousness, and it is progressively imparted to us by the work of the Holy Spirit. That's what's happening here. This pure and blameless nature that we will have is a result of this knowledge, discernment, this love, this approving what is excellent. So let's talk about these two words, pure and blameless. The word pure here is actually a, a, a pottery word. It's really specific. Uh, it can also be sincere in your translation. That's a little better even. And this concept was, if you were a, a potter and you were a, a less than reputable one, you would make pottery and sometimes they would break. If you've ever done pottery, you know that sometimes in the kiln they, they crack. And so the, the less than reputable potters would take these things and put them back together and use wax to put the piece back together. And if it was just a showpiece, it didn't really matter, but it was held together with wax. It was insincere. That word sincere comes from uh, Latin. That means no wax. That's actually what it's talking about. So that's the key question. That's the key thing here with Paul. He says, are you 
really presenting to the world, to the church, to your brothers and sisters in Christ, who you are? Or are you an assembled piece of pottery covered in wax who looks like something you aren't? Are you genuine? This is clearly not about having no flaws. He didn't talk about, you know, are you an unbroken pot or something? I have flaws, you have flaws, right? Some that are more obvious than others or come out in different situations. I battle sin, you battle sin. This is not about being a perfect pot. It's about not taking the broken pieces of your life and waxing them together so it looks like you've got this thing going on. Paul's call here is to be sincere. So think about that in your life. Here this morning, are you presenting who you are in all of your broken pieces? Is that who you'll be in conversation? Is that who you are on your way home from church? Is that who you are with lunch at somebody today? Or do you bring this thing that isn't even really you? Does your family look different Monday to Saturday than it does Sunday morning? Does the last 72 hours of your life confirm and represent what you are here today? Is the person that you're presenting to the world, this family of believers, really you? Or is it a wax-covered version of you? I, for one, would far rather be in fellowship with those who present their broken pieces as they are. No wax. I certainly do not have it all together. And I know that you don't, no matter what it looks like. Right? That's the reality. Why pretend? What is the value, aside from pride and vanity? Think about how different our relationships would be if we gave up on this. How real our conversation would be with one another here and elsewhere. How genuine our struggle together to work, uh, with the Holy Spirit working in us to grow in Christ. How much more engaged could we be with one another in prayer and in love? This is also a huge piece of improving our witness. If a non-believer walks into a church where everybody appears to have all of their life together, what kind of invitation to the gospel is that? That's an unattainable goal. Their life is here. It's in, it's in the gutter. Why would we present to them a false gospel that says we have it all together? Doesn't make sense. Not real. It is not an effective witness to live wax-covered lives. Paul also calls us to be blameless. There's a couple of different words that show up as blameless. This one in particular means that we don't cause other people to stumble. Because it's eight words in English, they pick blameless for this one. So it means don't cause other people to trip up. It's not internal. This one is external, facing outwards. So we get the call to genuineness and real Christ life in our, in our lives through purity. But this blameless part is about outside. Then in loving, in seeking knowledge, in seeking discernment, in seeking what is best, discerning what is excellent, we need to do that in a way that is genuine and does not cause other people to stumble. I thought it was hard. Let's just add in two or three more things we've got to think about, right? Paul talks about this later in Philippians as well. Uh, specifically, he says, do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, the context there is, is about Christians being in the world, but surely if that's the expectation outside of these doors and not with these people, then it's certainly the expectation inside that we would be blameless and innocent without blemish. In their context, their grumbling and disputing about stuff meant that they were not blameless. It meant that they were not without blemish or pure. 
And again, we can see here the Christian life is not about me alone. It's not about you alone. Our sanctification, our growing in righteousness requires our life to be surrendered, not just to Christ as we so often depict it, right? It's just me and the Lord and we're doing it. It's to the community you're in. It's to the place where the Lord has put you to serve him in his body, the church. So do you consider your actions or decisions and their potential to cause other people to stumble? And not only the potential, but your responsibility for that. Do we think about those things? How do you live in community? Do we seek to avoid grieving your brother? Or do we grumble? Do we dispute? And harm our relationship, harm our witness, and harm our ability to be blameless and pure. Last thing. Paul prays for the the final result of this work of sanctification. He prays, he says, that you may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ Jesus. That's his la- the, the last part of the prayer here, is that we be filled with righteousness for the day of Christ. That little descriptor attaches to both there. Uh, this is clearly not, all of this so far, it's not a call to works, right? It's not saying you can improve in righteousness and you can improve in sanctification by just working at it. You can do it. But if that's your attitude, like, good luck. It's just not, it's not going to happen. The world, you know, does their thing out there, and they try to improve themselves, and where do they get, right? It's this, it's the cycle. Read the book of Judges. That's the world, right? It's just cycles of sin and depravity and increasing sin more and more. This is not that. This is not our work. Paul says here, be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. What's the source of all this? What's the source of our sanctification, our righteousness, our growth in love, knowledge, discernment, approving what is excellent? It's Christ. This is not a, a call to works by any means. It's a, a, an expectation, a real biblical one, of what the gospel looks like when it works in your life. This is the natural outworking of the gospel on a Christian, that we will grow in the fruit of righteousness. Jesus teaches about this too, about bearing fruit. It's one of the other, only other fruit-bearing passage, passages in the New Testament, so I'm pretty sure Paul had it in mind. Uh, in John 15, Jesus says, Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Depart from me, you can do nothing. Paul is almost just expounding on this text, right? Jesus is the vine. We are the branches. Apart from him, nothing will happen. You can flip this around, too, and say not only is is the only source of righteousness, the only source of fruit of righteousness from Christ, this is also a guarantee in the life of the believer. Jesus says you will bear much fruit. Not like, come to me and you might, we'll see how it goes. No. You will bear fruit. This is the expectation of the believer. This isn't happening in your life. Like, be worried. Do some work. Pray. Talk to somebody. This is what it looks like to have the gospel working in you. Paul also points here to the day of Christ. He says, Philippians, to be motivated in this, remember that Christ is coming back. He is going 
to return. And on that day, from this passage, if we're filled with the fruit of righteousness, this is what he'll see, because we have been characterized by overflowing love, by seeking the knowledge of God and discernment, by desiring to approve what is excellent, our purity and blamelessness, and in all those things, he will see our fruit of righteousness that come through him. And he will see the fruit of righteousness because when we fail in all of these things, in big and small ways, we clung to Christ alone. There's a uh, preacher from the 17th century named Matthew Henry, and he wrote a, a biblical commentary based on his sermons, and, and he said, commenting on this, the spiritual prosperity of believers should be measured not so much by the point they have reached, but by the fact and the measure of the progress they are making. This is the measure of sanctification, of the fruit of righteousness in all of us. It has nothing to do with how I look compared to you. Expectations are different. Realities are different. The Lord placed me in a life and in a growing up and in a circumstance and with, with education and proclivities that are different from yours. I am not going to look the same as you as a Christian. It's just how it is. The Lord has called different people in different places of life to glorify himself the most. Where he has put you, what he has made you, what he's called you out of, is his work. And he loves that. And he wants you to grow from where you are. The only benchmarks that matter in sanctification and in righteousness is you today and Jesus Christ. And that's it improve from where you are as the holy spirit works in you to the goal of being like jesus this work is never done because christ is the measure the key thing from the teaching of jesus and from the teaching of paul is that this is not optional we can't just choose to neglect this stuff this is evidence of the fruit of righteousness in us we can't be content either with where we are. We can't neglect love. We can't neglect knowledge, discernment. We can't just choose not to discern what is excellent or just fail to care about fruit of righteousness. We also can't be content with where we are in any of those things. Paul ends his prayer with uh, one final line and, and perhaps the most important one. He says, all of these things, the love, the knowledge, discernment, fruit of righteousness, is all to the glory and praise of God. This is not a work of us, in us, for us. How about me? It is a work of the Holy Spirit in me for the purpose of bringing glory to God. He is glorified in the end and now by his work of sanctification in our hearts. And that's where Paul ends, is that all of this is to the glory of of God. I'd like to just conclude this portion of our time together with uh, just some time for response. We'll take about a, a minute or so. Of course, there's more opportunities for this later, but now um, just take a moment with this next slide that's up there, and, and I've just reworded the, the prayer in the form of a, parapra a paraphrase for you and for us. Um, so take a minute, and you can pray through the whole thing if you want to, or just zone in on that one thing the Holy Spirit hasn't let you forget about for the last 40 minutes, like just whatever you uh, are working through or working in or need to pray about, take that moment, and then in a minute I'll, uh, I'll just read that prayer uh, to close.
Lord, we desire to be filled with the fruit of righteousness that now and on the day of Christ we might glorify you. Help our love to overflow, to abound more and more according to our knowledge of you and with biblical discernment so that we would approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for when you return. Lord, we thank you for this text. It's a hard text. It's a heavy text. Sanctification is hard. We thank you that it is not a work of us, in us, for us, but it's by you and for you and for your glory. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.